You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading is from Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good afternoon. Uh, If you haven't met me before, my name is Corin, the Associate Pastor here. And it's so great to see you uh, on this wonderful Sunday. You know, growing up, in Adelaide during the early and late 2000s, there was an event that would often stop the city. It was the Tour Down Under. If you don't know what it is, it's a cycling event. And in that decade, there was one main reason for that. And it was none other than American cyclist Lance Armstrong. I remember when he was in town talking to all my friends and all my colleagues, uh, they, they all wanted to know when he was riding in the city. There were times Lance would set up these kind of free runs for anyone in the city of Adelaide to come along. He would lead it and anyone who's riding a bike can come along and follow him. And as you'd imagine, thousands of cyclists actually joined him on the Adelaide streets, or the Adelaide roads. Mate, I'm sure that you've honked at a cyclist on the road, side of the road before. Imagine honking at a thousand. All right. Only somebody like Lance in the cycling world could do this. He had this pull. He had this aura. People wanted to be like him. They wanted to change their health, their lifestyle because of this man. Turned out he was the Greek, like the greatest drug cheat in all of history. But anyway, delete that part from the story. But you can see that he was, he was a, a very influential man. But have you ever experienced some, something like that before where you see these types of people who bring about this, this aura? This influence that make people who want to, uh, that make people who meet them want to change to, to either be more like them or to shape their lives around the things that they say. See, over the next three weeks here at Sydney Hill, Melbourne West, we're going to be looking at, uh, the one person in history who had this effect on people the most. And he was no fraud like Lance or other fallible humans, but was, but he was the way, the truth and the life. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. In the book of Titus, the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to his fellow Christian brother Titus to encourage him as he was commissioned by Paul to lead over various churches on the island of Crete. And so in a newly appointed leadership role, Paul writes this letter to encourage this man Titus in his leadership over these churches. These churches who, like any other church, were susceptible to false teachers. And so Paul, in the first chapter of Titus, of his letter directs Titus to uh, establish good, faithful leaders and elders at the church. But it's in the second and third chapters, which is what our three-week series is focusing in on, where we see Paul remind Titus what the Christian faith is rooted in, that it is rooted in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, 
that God the Son took on sinful human flesh on the cross. And so because of this, Paul grounds his letter to Titus with this theological truth and how this truth ought to impact the lives of all believers who hear this. See, over the next few weeks, as we dig into chapters 2 and 3 of Titus, we're going to see how, how seeing Jesus changes us. That as theologian Charles Swindle says, that his being precedes our doing. That Jesus is the one person throughout history who has brought about the most change and impact in the lives of billions through his grace. As author Roger Cree writes, Jesus Christ has affected history more than any other person. What he did changed the world forever. But while it sounds great to hear of how lives are changed by by Christ's great grace, it's in our passage that Paul not only calls it an encouragement, but calls it our responsibility. That those who have seen Jesus, those who know him, are called into a transformed, zealous life. From this series, we hope that we'll be able to come out of it afresh and zealous to do good in this world, motivated by our knowing and love of Saviour Jesus. And I think it all starts with what is my first point, that we first need to properly see Jesus in his grace. And so we read verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. See, this is a wonderful verse that really sets the tone for our series. But what you might not realize is that the word that is most helpful in setting up our entire series is the one that you'd least expect in this verse. It's actually the first word of the verse, the word for. Because when a passage starts with the word for, it means that we must consider what was said just before this. See, in the 10 verses prior to our passage today, Paul is exhorting Titus as he leads the churches to teach what accords with sound doctrine so that every young man, young woman, old man, old woman, worker, owner, listening may hear proper and right doctrine in regard to the Christian faith. That as verse 10 says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. See, Paul wants Titus to teach the message of God and his redeeming work of humanity faithfully and correctly, that all listeners have a, a true and proper understanding of the God who saves, which leads to a, an adoration and worship of who God is and what he has done. Why sound doctrine is important in setting the tone for our series of how seeing Jesus changes us is because having a true and proper understanding of God as our saviour is paramount to seeing Jesus in his saving grace in the first place. That in order for change to happen, we need to properly see Jesus in his grace. And this was important because in those days, there were plenty of abusers and misusers of grace. See, the churches in Crete had outside voices trying to influence them with false teaching in those days. Around those days, the good news of Jesus was making waves across all sorts of towns and cities. But just as well, there were plenty of detractors who were trying to put a stop to this good news. Some who were mis mixing up the message, confusing hearers. 
and others who are blatantly teaching false gospels. You know, Second Peter chapter 2, which is again around that same time, says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And so with so many influences trying to muddle the gospel message, it would have been hard for people to see or grasp a clear picture of who Jesus is. People weren't getting this opportunity to see the real Jesus, let alone be changed by him. They were being led astray, seeing concocted depictions of Jesus, false teachers sharing a false gospel to many, people in churches who were prone to adorn the doctrines of man rather than of God. So people in those days were easily tempted to see a saviour who was nothing like the one that God had promised or the one that God had delivered. And the reality is it's still like that today. Churches who don't have a full grasp of who their saviour is, so they think of God as somebody who, who grants wishes and gives you anything that you want. Churches who believe in a counterfeit God who saves you for saying his name but lets you continue living in your life unchanged. Churches who believe in unhealthy and untrue doctrines where Jesus isn't who he says he is, where people are the saviours, where universal salvation to all men is upheld, where Jesus is pushed aside and man is lifted up. Paul was so adamant on Titus teaching in accord with sound doctrine because I think for Paul, he wants to make clear that a church that teaches and preaches sound doctrine will come to a proper understanding of who Jesus is and what he has given. To have a good and proper knowledge of God's word and our Christian belief is so vital to any professing Christ follower because as verse 11 tells us, it helps us properly see who our God is. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So here Paul reminds the reader of what's core to our beliefs as a Christian, that God is our saviour, what is essential in our understanding as Christians, that God brought salvation to all. And by all, he doesn't mean that every human who has ever lived But as I said earlier, Paul had just been talking to all sorts of uh, people during this time, young and old men, young and old women, workers, owners, slaves, even slaves. And so when Paul says God's grace brings salvation to all, he means to say to all types of people, including those whom the world even despises like slaves. Paul is essentially saying no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. That salvation is by his grace and it is his grace who appeared and comes into focus. What Paul is saying is that grace is not just a Christian concept, but grace came through in the form of a person, Jesus. In Jesus, grace has appeared. The real personification of it is in the person of Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14 describes Jesus as full of grace and truth. And it's not that God's grace was absent prior to Jesus. We read that the, the entire Old Testament see clearly that God's grace was evident all throughout the Old Testament, that no one was saved apart from God's grace. 
but as the same passage in John chapter 1 says, but in verse 17, that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God could have sent his son Jesus into the world to condemn us, to judge us, and he would have been right to do so because he is who? Our holy creator God. But as John chapter 3, verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Grace in Jesus. Grace is Jesus. See, what's really cool here is that the word appear that we read in the, in the verse was often used in Greek literature as a way to describe a hero breaking into a helpless situation to rescue someone from danger. And what a perfect description that is of Jesus full of grace because we were in a helpless situation and needed rescuing. See, in Genesis 3, we see the first man and woman disregard God choosing disobedience over faithfulness. And so for us as people, we are born of sin, naturally rebels of God, our creator, inclined to disobey him, yet God showed his grace to us. Grace, which is best described as God's unmerited favour to us. It is him showering favour and blessing onto those who did not in any way deserve or earn it. That is grace. And that's exactly what he did in Jesus. It's his saving, rescuing and transforming work that is for us. We are an unentitled people who deserve wrath and love. But the grace of Jesus in his atoning work entitles you to a relationship with God. In our helpless situation, we deserved judgment for our sin. For our disobedience against the holy God, we deserve eternal separation and eternal, uh, eternal torment. Yet God shows his grace to us by sending us his perfect son who took on that wrath and judgment on our behalf, who died for our sins, wearing and bearing sin's power, pollution and penalty in his body, who was raised to life and who won a resounding victory over sin and death, that those who believe and repent now have new life in him and death is no more. As Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace himself came and rescued us. I love what author Jeremy Treat says. He says, grace is not a thing. Grace is not stuff that God gives apart from himself. He doesn't run out of it. God gives us himself when we don't deserve it. That is grace. See, the often used definition of, of grace as an undeserved gift is right, absolutely. But it doesn't go far enough when referring to the grace of God. Grace is a gift, but God is not only the giver, he himself is the gift. God graces us with himself. Grace appeared in Jesus. See, this is the heart of what we believe as Christians. This is why Paul urges Titus to teach with sound doctrine. 
that we may know, we may know fully of the grace of God as seen in Jesus. And it's so important that we see this real Jesus filled with real grace. See the grace of God who has appeared. Because let's imagine, imagine you're standing in a long line at the bank, like waiting for really long, and somebody runs in and drags you out, out of that line and brings you outside. Understandably, you would be upset. You'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you dragging me out here? I was waiting in line. Now, if one fact changed and you knew that that bank was actually overrun with robbers and they were about to rob everyone that was standing there, your reaction would be completely different. Am I right? It would move from being upset to more likely a gratitude. Because in the first instance, you didn't know the danger you were in. But in the second, you've been made aware that you were in trouble until that person rescued you. If we aren't taught sound doctrine, if we don't see the true Jesus of the Bible, we can't properly appreciate God's grace. We can't see that we were justly under his wrath. We can't see that we were headed to eternal judgment. We can't see that we needed somebody to intervene, to somebody to rescue us. And we wouldn't see that God himself, grace himself, came and did exactly that. If we never properly see Jesus, we will never properly see grace. See, author R. Kent Hughes says, grace is not some abstract doctrine or theological construct. Grace comes as Christ does. Grace is as personal as he is. In fact, Christ is grace. The unmerited favour of God is what Jesus is about, but it is also who he is. We should thus see grace as a personal action by a personal God who saved us from our helpless condition out of pure love. So, have you seen the Jesus that we read about in the Bible? and experienced his grace that brings salvation? Have you personally experienced his grace? And has he brought salvation to your life? If you haven't, I want to encourage you to keep digging into God's word, into scripture, in hopes that you will see this grace of God who appeared to bring salvation to all. And I'd love to catch up with you and chat with you if you want to, if you have questions and want to know more about that. But if you have, and I assume this is most of us sitting here on the pews, for those of us who have seen the Jesus that we see in Scripture and experienced his grace, Paul reminds us that we are a changed people. We are made anew. And it's in the following verses that I make my next point, that Jesus, that seeing Jesus' grace teaches us how to live. See verse 12 training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. And later on in verse 13, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice that as Paul talks about the change that occurs in a person, that it's a continuation from the grace of God who has appeared and brought salvation, that in Jesus appearing and rescuing us from our situation, change must occur. Change that begins with training, a word used to also describe like a disciplining or correcting, a correcting that involves renouncing ungodliness. In other words, rejecting a life where God is ignored and not revered, where God has no place in your life, rejecting that 
And there's a disciplining that means uh, relinquishing worldly passions, giving up your desires of the things in the world that are opposed to God, things which the world often lift up as good, things like pride, power, lust, greed, sinful pleasures. But this change from grace isn't just a rejecting of things. It's also an upholding of things. Living lives that are self-controlled, upright and godly, it means not only saying no to ungodliness and worldly things, it means also saying yes to faithful, godly living. While sin has been dealt with on the cross, no longer claiming death over us, in our present age, sin does still remain in the Christian, but it no longer reigns in us because of grace. So grace trains us to control ourselves, to be upright in our relationships with others. Grace trains us to be godly in how we live. What this is essentially saying is that for the grace of God, Jesus has brought salvation to those who believe, justifying us in front of an almighty God. This same grace brings about wholesale change in those who believe, bringing about a sanctifying work in us by grace. In other words, a setting apart as we become more holy. As R.C. Sproul says it well, he says, as Paul instructed Titus, saving grace is also sanctifying grace. That The grace that saves teaches believers to live in ways that are different from the patterns of life that arise out of unbelief. See, God's grace not only saves us, but it also trains every believer in holiness, motivating us to be a people who are zealous for good works, as said in verse 14. So I always love the I always love the well-known story that many of you may know of of Lee Lee Strobel, who was a lifelong atheist. For two years, he went on a journey to uncover Jesus, and in hopes of proving Jesus to be a fraud. But instead of a fraud, in those two years, Lee proved him proved Jesus to be the savior of his life. Saved by Christ's grace, Lee was transformed and motivated to do good in the world as a changed man. He became a pastor, an author, an apologist to bring good the good news of Jesus to many rather than keeping it to himself. What I think about this is, is what a great example of a person seeing Jesus and being changed by his grace, a life saved and made anew, a life that now reorients to be trained and motivated by the grace that saved it. But while there are so many wonderful stories, testimonies, and maybe even own examples, experiences of your own lives or people's lives completely changed after seeing Jesus, the reality is, just as it was in Titus's time, we are all still so prone to get it wrong. See, with grace being such a profound gift and experience, one of our greatest temptations will be to misconstrue grace as a permission to sin. See the mindset that that since God graciously forgives sin, then why do I why do I need to live a sin-free life? God is good at forgiving, I'm good at sinning. The more I sin, the more grace I get. It's God's job to forgive my sin. That's just what he does, so I'm just going to keep on doing it. See for some, it's quite blatant. Like purposefully sinning in hopes of receiving more grace. You know, those moments where maybe you thought to yourself, I'll commit this sin just one more time because God will forgive me anyway, so I'm just going to do it. But for others, it's more subtle. That because a Christian receives the gift of God's grace that we're forgiven, we say, done and dusted. Salvation is ours. And so we see grace as the permission to sin because we go on with our lives completely unchanged. 
The only difference between your old life and the one now is that you've professed that you believe in Jesus. So you go on with your regular life, continuing in sexual sin, continuing idolizing the things of the world, continuing living in the freedom of life, doing whatever you want with, well, whenever you want and whoever you want. And so what we get is what is often referred to as a cheap grace. See, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes it. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. It is grace without price, grace without cost. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine and intellectual assent. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. In simpler words, Cheap grace is taking sin lightly. It's continuing in sinful habits and a sinful life because you've already been forgiven. See, what Bonhoeffer is essentially saying with cheap grace is that when sin is taken lightly, then the salvation that Jesus purchased with his life is also cheap. That his life came at a cost for ours. So a cheap grace is one that comes at no cost to us. Now to hear that it comes at a cost to us might make us feel a little uncomfortable because we've just been hearing that grace, as we know, is a free gift from God to us, that he freely gave himself to us, that his grace covers all our sin, which is absolutely the wonderful truth. Paul says that in Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here, Paul, in Romans 5, Paul is saying that, that grace overpowers sin because the law unmasked humanity's sin, making us more aware to our sin, as our sin increased and we recognised our sinfulness, the more God's remarkable gift of grace increased as well to cleanse the repentant sinners. The more we sinned, the more God's grace was increased, Paul was saying. This says so much about our God that as we keep failing, God kept giving himself. And yet, what Paul says immediately after this passage is what is most crucial. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised in Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Because we have received the grace of God, being saved by his son Jesus, are we to continue on sinning that we can keep receiving his grace? By no means. But because Jesus has died for us and was raised to life, that we could have life, we now walk in this newness of life. We are new creations in Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. To receive the grace of God is to walk a changed life. That's the cost to us. 
it will cost us our entire life. Jesus said it himself in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. To follow Jesus is to deny our sinful selves daily and to follow him. This is not a cheap grace, but a costly grace. Costly, not in that it cost us something to obtain it, because there's nothing that we could ever do that we would earn salvation apart from God's sovereign saving work in us. But as Christians who have been saved by grace through faith, our lives must change not for grace, but from grace. Because of the gospel, we are motivated not by guilt, but by gratitude. Holiness is not a prerequisite for grace. It is a product of grace. As R.C. Sproul says, those who have been reconciled to the holy God will not be satisfied to go on living in immorality. Grace trains Christians not to sign peace treaties with sin, including ungodly actions and inclinations. Grace reorients a believer's desires and actions. The grace of God that paid for our sins teaches us to turn away from them as we follow Jesus Christ through faith. To see Jesus is to see what it costs to bring us salvation and be so moved by it that we want nothing else but to live as his new creation, saying no to ungodliness and saying yes to holiness. So let's not cheapen sin or else we cheapen grace, but see Jesus and know of his costly grace. And it is indeed costly. Paul is urging all believers to reject the world that we live in that bombards us daily with the message to love it most. The world always says, love me, love the world. But Paul is making his plea for us to live in holiness for all the rest of our days. It's not easy. The reality is, even though we may be saved by Jesus, experience his grace and desire to live like him every day, our motivation and our fervor can grow weary. And it's if Paul knew that. So he gives us an encouragement to stay the course, which is my third point, which is Jesus' grace gets us looking forward. See, in verse 13, Paul says that we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. See, here Paul is talking about the time when Jesus will return again where he will establish his kingdom on earth, where he will usher in the age of eternity, where those who are his will spend forever in his glory and presence. As Hebrews 9 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. But of course, on the other end, this is also the time that those who aren't his will spend eternity separate from him. In judgment, as Revelation 22 says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. See, Jesus' second coming is the blessed hope for every believer because it marks the moment where sin will be no more, the earth is restored, and eternal joy in the worship of God begins. 
It is where all those who are God's children will receive their new and glorified bodies, it says in the Bible. A glorification where God's honour, praise, majesty and holiness will be realised in us. You know, a culmination of God's final removal of sin as he brings us to holy communion with him for eternity. Philippians 3 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. See, the Bible has made clear this future hope of four believers of Christ, that there is something worth waiting for. That as 1 John chapter 3 says, Although it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, we know that when he returns in great glory, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, why does Paul include this future hope when talking about how seeing Jesus changes us? Because when we look forward to our blessed hope, we can be motivated to live faithfully in the present right now. And I think there's two ways that it does this. Firstly, it helps us clean the sin in our lives right now. See, in that same First John passage in chapter 3, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And in verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Because Jesus is holy, and perfect, and he has bought us with a price, one that cost us our life. When our daily focus is set on the hope of Jesus' return, if every day we're looking forward to him coming back, it helps motivate us to uh, be rid of the sin that put him on that cross, to clean house. Like if you knew the King of England was coming to your house, that sounds weird, right? The King of England. I miss you, Queen. The Queen of England was the one. If you imagine the King of England was coming to your house, you'd clean your house before that, right? Make sure it was clean, spotless, beyond presentable because you want to present yourself as best as you can in front of royalty. Now imagine it was the King of Kings. See, holding on to our future hope means knowing Jesus can return at any given moment. So there's a motivation to purify ourselves of any sin in our lives, knowing that we anticipate to see Jesus. As Revelation 19 describes, we wait for the coming of our bridegroom. And just like a bride would in a wedding, we want to present ourselves blameless and beautiful in front of our bridegroom. Any believer who has tasted God's grace looks forward to Jesus' return. And that hope motivates us to purify ourselves as he himself is pure. And secondly, and I think most significantly, how holding on to our future hope motivates us in the now is that it gives us a foretaste of what's to come. See, one of, uh, a lot of, for a lot of people, their favorite joys as an engaged couple is doing the banquet tastings that will help them decide what food they'll have at their wedding. See, I'm Vietnamese, so I got to do a lot of the, the 10 banquet things, so I got to eat a lot of lobster doing all of that, which is why I have gout, but that's another story for another time. But people love the wedding tasting for the banquet. And why is that? It's because engaged couples, when they do this, they get a foretaste of that wedding day. They get to enjoy 
enjoy the food as if it's what they'll experience on that day and it's made more of a reality while they're there eating it, tasting it. Sometimes we may have this picture in our mind that once we believe and become Christians, that we can sort of passively cruise and just wait until that last day when Christ returns for real change to happen. But do you notice how uninspiring that is? And not only that, but how contrary it is to how Jesus lived. Jesus, while down here, didn't just sit around and wait for his death on the cross, but Jesus was zealous in doing good in this world. He rejected ungodliness and lived a godly life. In fact, the perfect life, going around doing good because he is good. And while we are absolutely not Jesus, as people who have seen him, as people who have been saved by his grace, as people who, as Ephesians 4 says, we have put off our old self and we put on a new self created after the likeness of God in in true righteousness and holiness, it means that we don't sit around waiting for Jesus to snatch us out of this world, but instead we live as his disciples now, patiently but actively expecting his appearance by living out our holiness By living out our holiness, we get a foretaste of that future glory. We get to enjoy the transformation that occurs in us by the Holy Spirit right now, God in us. And that sanctification that occurs in our present life gives us a glimpse of that future hope that will one day come to full fruition. See, looking forward to our blessed hope or to stir us to live faithfully and do good. The grace that has saved us is the grace that does a transforming work within us. It's a process that occurs in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, which Paul will go into more detail next next week next in the, in the next chapter. But this is a sanctifying work that puts sin to death. It grows us in holiness and it gives us the zeal to do good. You know, John Calvin, a famous pastor, author, sums it up well. He says this, There is nothing that ought to render us more active or cheerful in doing good than the hope of the future resurrection. And believers ought always to have their eyes fixed on it, that they may not grow weary in the right course. Seeing Jesus changes us and looking forward to seeing him helps us do that. Now hearing all this, It certainly challenges and encourages the believer who struggles to be active in their faith. And that's a lot of times all of us in different seasons. But the tension that is always there whenever we talk about good deeds in the Bible is that our deeds can be easily lifted up where they shouldn't be. And our temptation is to then live out a life that is more legalistic rather than motivated by grace. And so as Paul concludes our passage today, Paul draws it all together with my final point, that Jesus' grace has us always looking back to the one whom redeemed us from sin and made us his own possession. Jesus, who in verse 14 says, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. By always looking back, we're reminded of our status, 
that Christ gave himself for us. We didn't earn it or deserve it, but God acted for us. The work of salvation is his, but also we are his. By always looking back, we're reminded of the cost that Christ himself gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. It says that Jesus is our ransom, giving himself up to pay the price for every one of our lawless deeds. Our lawlessness cannot be paid by our lawfulness, but his holiness rescued us by becoming a ransom for our sin. By always looking back, we're reminded that we are cleansed, that Christ offered himself to purify his people for himself, that the defilement and tainting of sin can't be wiped away by us, but it has already been dealt with, with Jesus, with Jesus' blood for all those whom believe in him. And finally, by always looking back, we're reminded that we are treasured. See, after the terrible cost in purchasing us by his son, God could have looked at us in disdain, but instead he looks at us with a love as he deems us his own possession. We are precious to God, despite the sin that required such a sacrifice. We need not earn his acceptance by deeds, but by his grace, we are treasured by our good God. It's in our looking back that we are able to endlessly see the grace that characterizes our God, which should inspire us to do good works that pleases our Saviour. That as, as I've been saying all throughout, that grace leads to godliness. See, R. Kent Hughes, author, says, because Christ's work alone purchases our salvation through the redeeming price of his blood and because Christ's work alone purifies us through the cleansing that his blood supplies, we do not look to our works as the basis of acceptance with God. Doing what God requires does not make us his own, but having been made his own by no work of ours, we now love to love him who first loved us. What will ultimately make us holy it's not our willpower, it's not guilt, it's not an inspiring message, but a deep appreciation of the grace of God in Christ. As you just heard in our announcements earlier, we've just planted a new Sydney Hill Church, the ninth plant, Sydney Hill Whittington, which is just amazing just to see how God is truly moving there. You know, one of the most struggling suburbs in all of Victoria it's just a testament to the grace of God that is working. And I always remember this one story that was shared to the City on a Hill staff uh, by, by lead pastor Pete from the church. There was this one woman who is uh, recovering from a drug addiction, who through the church has recently become a Christian. And in this newfound joy of being God's own possession, she's been trying to be more like Jesus. And so she's been trying to be more generous to her friends and so as part of that, she shared to Pastor, Pastor Pete that she generously gave her drugs to one of her friends, saying, because that's what Jesus would want me to do. And Pete would tell her, well, that's probably not the best approach, but I love your heart, all right? But why I end with this story is because here's this woman who has clearly seen the grace of God. She knows that she has a wonderful saviour in Jesus 
and she wants nothing else but to be like him. And while she may not totally be there yet, neither are we. But what matters is that she has seen Jesus and he is changing her day by day, little by little, grace upon grace. So may Jesus' grace do the same to us. For as Galatians chapter 2 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, what a gracious God you are that you would send us your son, Jesus, that we have seen grace himself in his life, death and resurrection. Help those who don't know see the the real Jesus of your word, that they may see the true grace in the true saviour. May you help us, Lord, each day to see the weight of our sin, that we may see daily your immeasurable mercy. May we look forward to the blessed hope of Jesus' return, that it may spur us to live in newness of life now, zealous to do your good in this world. And Lord, help us to always look back, look back to Calvary, that we may never be unsatisfied with your saving grace seen on the cross. God, thank you that we have seen you and are changed by you, and you continue to do a changing work in us, all in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.